So if you guys don't know, I work at Turnip Green Creative Reuse, and I'm an AmeriCorps member, so like, I don't actually work. I volunteer my time. That's the language we have to use. Um, but if you've ever been in there, it's like this big I spy game of like things all over the place. Um, and it reminds me of when I was little, those I spy books, do you remember those? It was like a picture, some guy would like set it up and take a picture and then there's this list of things on the bottom that you have to look for. Anybody, am I crazy? Okay, um, so I was like pondering about what I was going to speak about today, which fun fact, in your pamphlet, that is not the verse that I'm preaching on. So here's a little extra scripture reading for your leisure time. Um, so anyway, my grandparents' house is like an I spy book, uh, both sides, borderline hoarders, probably actual hoarders. But it's like uh, a house of things full of stuff and neither of them ever threw anything away but would like use things to make new things. You know what I'm talking about? Like country crock butter containers, the old brown ones. I don't know if you guys remember those. And like yogurt containers had like knickknacks and tacks and pins, like all sorts of things were inside of them. Um, and so seriously, both sides. My great grandma was a prolific sewist. She was like the best in town and would make all of the clothes for her children. And she had like six of them, my grandparents. Uh, so she made them all. And her husband worked at the flour mill back in my hometown in Kansas. And the flour sacks used to be like printed with really pretty like patterns, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if you've ever seen those. Uh, and she would make all their clothes out of these old flour sacks. Um, also, the ladies at the church said she was the best brassiere maker in town, like better than the department store. I've never experienced that, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so they stored their toilet paper in these cr country crock things in the cabinet, like tucked away. They used like baby food jars to hold nuts and bolts in the garage like both my grandpa and my dad has them and they're like ancient and rusty and crusty like you might get tetanus trying to get to the screws kind of a situation and my mom when I was calling her the other day to ask her like hey what are the things that your parents reused you know she was like oh my mom used to take bleach containers and cut out a scoop shape out of the handle and we would play in the yard with them which does not seem safe to me but she, my mom's alive, and here I am, so it's okay. Um, and she said that when her pantyhose had too many runs in them, they would use them for, like, bird fluff. Like, put them in the yard, and the birds would, like, wow, thank you for this, and then fly off to their little nest. It was really a really wild situation. But I was thinking about it, and both my grandparents and my great-grandparents lived through the Great Depression in the 1930s and they kept everything, and they made things out of those old things because it wasn't worth it to throw it away. And they took the phrase, use it up, wear it out, make do, or do without, incredibly seriously. And that has like continued into my mom's life, which I'm trying to talk to her about, <laughs> so that later I don't have to go through all of these country crock containers. 
But the financial hardship of this era, you know, died away. And my grandma on my dad's side got into like money-making schemes, you know. So her and my aunt bought a kiln, like a full kiln. Actually, there's three kilns in the basement of my grandma's house. So they have all these molds and all this clay and they made porcelain figurines and would like sell them, you know, like Precious Moments Part 2 kind of a thing. And they sold them and then stopped. Like when I was old enough to understand, basically, they were like, oh yeah, we'll move on to the next moneymaker. So this kiln is like, all three of them, are in the basement of my grandparents' house. I'm pretty sure to this day, just chilling under there. And I didn't go down there very often where the kiln sat sleeping because the basement was terrifying, so scary. But all that stuff is there. And I got to feeling really bad because there's all this clay that was sitting there, crusty and dried out. And I was like, man, we can't use this for anything anymore. They just let it go to waste. And so I was doing some research and I found out that I was incredibly wrong. You can revive dusty, crusty clay to make new things out of. I did not take pottery in high school. So this is, if you took pottery, you might know all these, this information. But basically, you take a bag of clay and you put it in this five-gallon bucket and you put water outside of the bag in the five-gallon bucket and then put water inside the bag that's in the five-gallon bucket that's already in the water and you like leave it alone. <laughs> you poke some holes in it, you know, to increase the surface area so that the clay will like absorb water and you leave it for like a period of 12 to 72 hours and then all of a sudden you have like usable brand new clay again. So I told you I work at Turnip Green and we have all sorts of things. I found some clay <laughs> and I brought it with us. So if you don't want to get clay on your hands, you don't have to, but I encourage you to take a ball of clay. It is not chocolate, <laughs> please don't eat it. I encourage you to take a ball of clay and, do you want one? Okay. <laughs> and make a cup. Anybody? No? No? It's like, do you want one? <laughs> it's sticky. I'm sorry, but it's for the illustration. Huh? Oh, yeah, don't eat it, please. Mm-hmm. One sec, I'll make my way around. I have paper towels and stuff over here so you guys can wipe your hands. Do you guys want one? Aaron, do you want one? Okay, beautiful. Do you want one? Okay. <laughs> that, yeah, that might be not great. <laughs> okay, so I encourage you, while I'm reading this passage, make uh, like a little cup. Try to make a cup out of it. So, Jeremiah chapter 18, 1 through 6 is the meat of our lesson, but I'm going to read through 12 
because I got to thinking about it and I just really wanted to. <laughs> so, at the potter's house. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent, and I will not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it is no use. We will continue in our plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> okay. So, for those of you who don't know, Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet who lived in the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. So he called the people out, the people of Israel, for their idolatry, for their disobedience, and breaking the covenant between them and God. And so he warned them that if they continued doing what they were doing, that they would be overtaken by Babylon, a kingdom from the north. So Jeremiah lived through this and witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and exile. And so in the beginning of the book, Jeremiah is called to do two things. He's called to be a prophet to Israel and to the nations. He is called to uproot and to tear down. And he's called to plant and to build up. Jeremiah calls out the people of God for their disobedience and provides a message of hope in, for the future. So he not only tells them, hey, you guys are not doing the thing that you promised with God, but gives them hope that things can turn around if they choose. So the first 24 chapters happen before the exile. And the core idea is that Israel has broken their covenant with God and have adopted worship of Canaanite gods. And he accuses Israel's leaders for their injustice towards the marginalized and their abandonment of the Torah. So about six chapters after what we just read, Israel is conquered by Babylon. So have that in your mind as we're thinking. This might be an explanation why Jeremiah uses such harsh language towards the people about telling them, hey, this is what's going to happen if you continue and disobey. So we're going to work through this passage for those of us who are not ancient Near Eastern potters so we can understand a little bit better. So first off, the Lord tells Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. 
And this is important for two reasons, one of which, a physical reason. The temple and Jerusalem would have been on a hill, and in order for Jeremiah to go see the potter, he would have had to have actually walked down a hill outside of the city. And the second reason is because potters were not the high echelon of society. Jeremiah would have had to have left his comfort zone in the temple, around the scriptures, around all the people who follow the rules, and go down into the dirty muck of a potter's house. So I want to kind of talk about the location of the potter's field for just a minute. So the potter's house had a workshop where they could sell the things that they made. They had a field for storing and trading clay. They had a kiln for these vessels, and they had a dump for the discards. So we're going to kind of like map this out a little bit. Um, So this is our lovely Jerusalem. Yes, this is the temple. Daily helped me write a T in there, so you know that that's the temple. For reference, a place sort of over here is Gethsemane, where Jesus, you know, died. So just for reference. But anyway, so the potter's field would have been in this sort of situation. This is the Valley of Kidron. Remember, we're up on a hill. And this is the Valley of Hinnom. And you might recognize that, also known as Gehenna. Ga meaning valley and Henna meaning Hinnom in Greek. We've talked about Gehenna a couple weeks ago, and it's basically hell. That's what it is. So the potter's field would have been in this area because the drainage basin for the valley of Hinnom would have come here, and the drainage basin for the valley of Kidron would have also come here. So that means that the potters would have had amazing clay to work with. That's where everything drained all of these minerals and metal trace metals. So there's perfect clay here. Later in the passage, it talks about how um, the potters would have had access to uh, the pot's herd gate, which is like sort of in this situation, also known as the dung gate, which is not an ideal place to enter the city if you know what I mean. It's not great. We learned about a couple weeks ago that Gehenna is like a landfill, right? It's like a trashy dump. And that's where people would take their trash and deposit it where this potter would have lived. And there's also a pool right here, basically, that they would have had access to. So the potters were located outside of town so that they wouldn't disturb the residents because they would have had lots and lots of kilns where they, were, they would be firing their raw materials. And if you've ever been around a kiln, they're hot, and now they're like electric, which is cool. But before, they would have had to have burned things. So there would have been this huge plume of black smoke everywhere, and nobody would have wanted to be near them. So they were outside of the city. So Jeremiah would have had to venture all the way down from the temple do, 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 outside the dung gate and all the way down to the, the potter's house in order to visit him. It probably was not the greatest trek. It might have been humiliating for a guy like Jeremiah who spent his time 
reading scripture and telling people, hey, this is what you shouldn't do, but now he actually had to go do it. So this clay in this like valley had a reddish tint, which made beautiful clay, and it probably came from like trace metals like iron ore. Um, But the New Testament tells us something different about this field. So this field has ties to Judas and Jesus. So you know how Judas betrayed Jesus and got paid money for it? And you remember how he was like, oh no, I'm distraught about what I've done. I'm going to throw this money away and run. And he killed himself. So the Pharisees took that money and bought this plot of land. And they buried non-Jews there. So it's not only this place where people will like take pottery out of, but that also is like a burial ground. And also, Judas would have like would have hanged himself in this general region and in one of the New Testament Gospels it says that he fell from his noose and like broke open onto the land and so they call it uh, the field of blood which you know it's iron ore that's what makes it red but we think it's because of Judas. So that's where we are in the scene of the story. So this potter was responsible for making vessels to trade and for the city, and they perfected their craft. And if you think about it, this is modern clay, what you're working with right now. Ancient clay would have been not as clean. It would have been more like what I think of when I think back to my childhood, and I was like tromping around in the clay banks of this creek by my house, And one minute you're like squishing along and the next minute you're like picking sticks out of your toes. You know what I mean? So I imagine most of you probably found out that your clay was not perfect, but had an impediment in it. Did anybody find their little impediment? (laughs) Yeah, you have a rock in your clay. So take that out. And I want you to like hold it up and show me what you have made. Let me see. Beautiful cups. Awesome. Awesome. David's, yours is amazing. Okay. Now what I really want you to do is I want you to like just squish it. Crush it. Crush it. Crush it. Crush it. Yes. Thank you, Gib. Thank you. Crush it. Okay, now make something new. Yes, take the piece out and make something new out of it. So don't make the same thing that you made before. Try something else. So if the potter caught a lump or an imperfection or a stick or a rock, he would have stopped just then and redid it and made a new pot because he wouldn't have wanted to fire the pot with the imperfection because clay was expensive. It was laborious to go get. And so the potter, knowing his craft perfectly, would have said, oh, I need to fix this and would have made something new. So even when a pot is dried to like a leather hard stage, it can be salvaged as long as it hasn't been fired yet. If we fire the clay, then we can't soak it and make new things because it's already been dried out. It's not porous anymore. It's just way harder. And a leather hard clay, which is like, it has enough 
moisture out of it that it will hold its shape and you can carve it and design it without like totally destroying it, but it's soft enough that you can join other pieces to it. If we keep clay in this state, then it can be remade over and over and over again, and you can soak it and make new lumps of clay. So clay can sit out for years and still be made into new clay. So nowadays, potters will use ceramic uh, and glaze, which is like silica-based when you fire it at high temperatures, it turns to glass, you know, the whole situation. And it won't work if you want to soak it overnight and then make something new. It won't work. So, again, I'm telling you, I have to try really hard not to bring things home from Turnip Green because I work there and I live there, basically. So I found this really cute piece that someone has made for a special occasion. It's like hard, it's been fired, but it's just so cute that I decided to bring it home. Um, but this is an example of what fired clay is like. Like we can't mold that, you know? That's not gonna work. But what you have can be molded into new things. But what I have cannot be molded into. <laughs> Fun fact, I didn't, I didn't, I planned that. <laughs> So now we have pieces. For those of you who have anxiety with other people, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but now we have these little pieces, but still I can't make them into anything. I can't refire the pot and put this back in. It just won't work. So the point is, if we live life after the firing, we can't change. We can't adapt to the needs of our community or the needs of our neighbors or the way God is calling us to move in the world. If we stay in the leather hard stage, we can catch those imperfections in ourselves, And by the grace of God and with God, we can pull those imperfections out and make ourselves into something new. And so this story reminds us that we can be reused just because a piece of clay has been left in a basement for years doesn't mean that we can't make something out of it. And just because it's been shaped and there's a pebble in it, doesn't mean we can't remake it into something new. So, we don't have to throw all of our clay away. And the potters of the ancient Near East wouldn't have done that either because it was expensive and hard to get. And it takes a long time to clean and to mold and to fire. And it's not like the potters could use two-day shipping to get a new set of clay. So creating and shaping was an intimate experience for these potters. So look at your clay. Look at it closely. Can you see those fingerprints all over it? Can you see the mark that you have left in this piece of clay? You have created that thing in your hands. It has your unique touch and no one else's. So things that we've put, spent time on and put our blood and sweat and tears into mean a lot to us. And we are more careful to reuse those items than like a single-use plastic fork or some other kind of fast fashion or a product that we've just bought off the shelf. If we make things and put our hearts into them, we're more likely to reuse them. 
So this talking about clay harkens back to the Genesis narrative, to the creation of humanity. God's hands kneaded and smoothed the dirt, the moist earth, and then God breathed life into a new creation so that human beings are simultaneously connected to the earth and also animated by the breath of God. This is what clay can remind us about. So God never wastes clay, and everything can be made into something beautiful. And eventually this metaphor will break down because these broken pieces of pot can be made into like a mosaic or put into like a concrete garden stone path. So there never has to be waste, ever. But it is important to remember this one thing. We are not a passive lump of clay. You and I are not a static pitcher or a mug or even these little cups that you guys are working on, but we have a relationship with God and we get to participate with God in our recreation of our lives. God reshapes our lives and our habits and our lifestyle and we can work together in this. It's also worth noting that this is a messy process If you look at your hands, I'm sure a lot of you will find this dusty stuff. It's in your fingernails or in your cuticles. It's everywhere. Now you get to remake your new pot. (laughs) So it's messy and it's not easy. And much like our lives, creating new habits and letting God pick out the imperfections in our lives is a hard process and it's messy. Removing sticks and rocks is hard, but we also have the opportunity to leave them there. If we want, we can say to God, no, I don't, I don't want to take these things out of my life, and go on. So the work of being remade and reused is not straightforward, it's not clean, and it's not easy, and we have to unlearn things and shape our relationships in different ways, and take a long look at the dark corners of our life where our crusty clay hides, and make a decision on whether we want to partner with God in making something new. So the beauty of humanity's relationship with God is that we were once dust or mud or clay, if you will, but through the breath of God, we are shaped. And if we are willing to participate, we can be shaped and reshaped to adapt to the needs of our communities. And through that process, look closer and closer to the image of God. And this is what I pray for us today, that one day we can look at Jesus and we can look at ourselves and we won't even be able to tell the difference. So if you'll take your little pots and crush them one more time. I know, (laughs) crush them one more time. (laughs) And we'll, we'll go ahead and pray. I feel like David has not crushed his either time. Look at it, a cute mug. (laughs) Okay, hold your clay between your hands and we're gonna pray. God, thank you for these friends. Thank you for the messy mud and clay that we have to work with today. And thank you for your reminders through scripture and through hobbies and through the dirt that we are intimately connected to you and to the world around us. 
And thank you for helping us and guiding us in reshaping our lives and our habits and our lifestyles so that we might look more like you. Thank you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.